This episode was produced in cooperation with the ETH Entrepreneur Club, a student organization which aims to inspire, educate, and empower the next generation of entrepreneurs. The ETH Entrepreneur Club holds more than 40 events every year, resulting in an impressive alumni list of successful startups. If you want to keep up with their busy agenda, make sure to give them a follow on social media. We are a strong manufacturing powerhouse, but if we see like the venture capital investments flowing into startups, like Europe is almost not on the, on the map. Welcome to the Swisspreneur Show, a podcast about startup stories and learnings from experienced entrepreneurs. Here's your host, Sylvan. Martin, a very well welcome to the Swisspreneur Show. It's a pleasure to have you here today. Thank you, Sylvan. Yeah, it's, it's a pleasure. It's mine. Yeah, uh, thanks for being here. You're the co-founder and CEO of 90 Labs, a company that 3D prints carbon composites for high volume production. And before we talk about your story and your company, I want to start with your personal background. Mm-hmm. You actually have got a bachelor's degree, a master's of science, and also an MBA and a PhD. Could you just not get enough of school? <laughs> That's a good question. Yeah. I could now say, you know, this was all planned like from the beginning 10 right. years ago. But uh, honestly, yeah, it's, it's just like turned out to be this way. So it was a little bit. In general, I think um, sometimes you need to be opportunistic, and that's how it just turned out to be the way it is. But that's quite a, an educational background. In in what way does that background help you to be a better entrepreneur? Or was it just prolonging the process and said, oh, you actually could have become an entrepreneur way earlier than doing all these studies? Yeah, I think it's, it's, it's a very good question because um, during my master's time at, at ETH, that was before the MBA program, mm-hmm. this is where the idea of 90 Labs was born. And the idea also to kind of make a spin-off or a startup company was already in my head. Also in my brother's head, maybe we can touch base on this sure. in, in a second. Um, and the motivation for the MBA was actually coming from the, from the startup idea. Mm-hmm. And the PhD was actually a consequence after the MBA that we didn't have yet enough foundation for making the spin-off. Yeah. So, so to speak, side. the education was actually part of the founding process. So, yeah, so to say, yeah, you could actually say that in particular, the PhD was a consequence of uh, the desire to make a spin-off. Yeah. And despite the, the studies, you also worked as a researcher, of course, but also as a consultant. And mm-hmm. they are just wondering, you know, that's not the entrepreneurial world. So what didn't click with you with that world that you then said, mm-hmm. no, I really do want to go down the entrepreneurial path. Mm-hmm. So the, the kind of the... I got my first feet wet in, in the consultant world during my MBA program because it was kind of like part of the program itself. Okay. And I did spend this at, at Henkel in, in Munich, it was uh, former Loctite. Um, there, actually, it did make cli- it did click in a way. Mm-hmm. So I did enjoy this part. Uh, it was there like a new business development. Um, but for sure, you I did it at a big corporate, so you were quite constrained. Uh, by what you could do, like, you know, the kind of the small wheel in the big right. gearbox kind of example, right, or analogy. So, yeah, this, this, I think this part did not click for me so much that the, that, that the impact was, in my opinion, not, not big enough for what I wanted to have. So was that also frustrating in any way that you felt, oh, whatever I do, I don't really have the impact that I'm mm-hmm. looking for? Like looking back, I would say I did different things. I was also working a little bit like for another big corporate and I kind of, kind of, 
started my professional life also at a big corporate as a technician, as a mechanic, mm -hmm. right? Um, so in all those things I did over the last 10 years, I could not say that I regret anything or I did not enjoy what I was doing. Mm -hmm. So I like in, in any way I could enjoy part of it. And I think it's also part of life that we enjoy some things more than others. Right. There's always some aspect we did maybe do not enjoy too much. But yeah, I always enjoyed like working in all those different professions and things and companies. Yeah. And yet you then became an entrepreneur. Where does that drive come from? Do you have any family background of entrepreneurs that motivated you or why did you choose that path? Hmm. Maybe there are two things, but I'm not sure if they're like uh, the, the sole um, reason why, why there was this desire. Uh, but I grew up on a farm. So a farm in a way is also kind of an, it's, it's a company in a way. It's Absolutely. run like a company. Uh, so this is medium sized in southern part of Germany. So it was just my dad and basically the family. So there were no employees or anything. Uh, but yeah, I mean, you're responsible for what you do. Um, you have direct impact. Uh, there are hard times. There are good times. Um, I think that shaped me in a way, mm -hmm. for sure. And my uncle also, he has like the youngest brother of my dad, he has a, a software company in, in Constance, at the Lake Constance. And there was always a, like a close knit relationship to, to him. Um, and maybe, I mean, that's certainly also like uh, shaped us, uh, my brother and I, um, from how we perceived entrepreneurship and yeah founding a company. And you mentioned your brother before. So what impact did he have on your entrepreneurial journey? Yeah, first, like we are, we are twins. So we're identical twins. So we have a really close relationship and he has a similar background. So, so, so also here, like my dad is a very technical person, mm -hmm. you know, on the farm. Um, so we're always involved in building things and he, my brother and I, we enjoy a, a similar, basically background and, uh, we enjoy a, similar things. Uh, so the technical things, um, and I think actually there's a big reason, uh, or he was involved quite a bit in the beginning because he was, um, also advancing money for some of the first uh, patents we filed. He was actually experimenting also like uh, building the first prototypes. Uh, actually, before I did, he, he did like some of the first experiments that laid the foundation for everything. Yeah. Well, and yeah. then how did that story continue? Because mm -hmm. at a certain point in time, he had to make a decision whether to join the company or not, I guess. Yeah, this, this was actually also in the in the making and in the discussion. And there were like some different things played out. Um, so he also became a father. It was a uh, very right at that time, but was before we got incorporated. And then like, yeah, I mean, your situation, your life situation changes a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, and he was also not located in Zurich, uh, which I mean, you know, where I grew up and on the, on the other side, basically of the Lake Constance on the German side, it's not too far, but it's still far enough. True. And yeah, there were like different elements that kind of like, uh, yeah, didn't work out that he can, could join the company from the beginning uh, as a founder. and. He's still involved, so we chat a lot about uh, what we do, and uh, he still has ideas and pitches ideas. Um, but yeah. You then found two other co-founders, uh, Chester and Giovanni. How did you actually meet to, and then decided to start the company together officially as co-founders? Yeah. Yeah, it's... Um, okay, I mean, I have to start. That was like during my PhD time in the very mm -hmm. early days, uh, actually my first semester. Uh, I recall exactly, uh, it's quite vivid in my head, like how I met Chester, because, you know, actually I passed him in a, 
like in the break room and I was making a coffee, but we didn't chat at that point. And the second, co- I took the second coffee that somehow <laughs> we, we started chatting and uh, he actually helped me then like building my first rig, my first printer, like robot. It was a robotic printer, like with a robotic arm. Um, and yeah, and like working together, um, we kind of, you know, it clicked on the personal side. Um, we also had similar interests. Uh, he's very entrepreneurial in his like, how he grew up and how he also saw him or pictured himself in the future. And then we got to talk and uh, one thing led to the other. And Giovanni, Giovanni was very similar. So there it was about, a, I think it was a semester or master thesis. It was a semester thesis. Mm-hmm. So he was still in his master's and yeah, I, I had some interesting projects. And then we had also clicked on basically in the discussion of he, if he wants to do this uh, project. And then, yeah, we also worked together, um, bachelor, uh, no, not bachelor, there was a, in the master's uh, a project. And then we also did like his master thesis together. So I was basically then quite involved with him or we're working together. And that's, yeah, so in general, like uh, all the three of us have, have been working together probably a little bit close to one and a half years before we kicked off the venture. Nice. I think that's actually crucial to find out if you make a good co-founding team or not, right? Yeah, and in a way, we are quite different. Like, uh, like also personally, like you know, our character is quite different, mm-hmm. but quite complementary. And this is, I think, it's actually an important aspect. We don't have to be all aligned and all exactly the same, shaped the same way. Of course. Um, so we are quite different. We we have different interests. This is good for what we want to do at the company as well. But we share similar values, and I think that makes us really strong. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think that's the perfect summary. Complementary skill sets, but shared values. That's what yeah. makes a good founding yeah. team. But does not mean that we, we never have disagreement on things. Of course. I think we disagree yeah. quite a lot on things, but we then kind of, pay, this gives us perspective, different angles, yeah. gives, makes good discussions, and at the end uh, makes hopefully the best decisions. But it's not always the best. I mean, we always learn, right? So, <laughs> But with your background, you're, you're all quite technical, right? Yeah. So how do you training, then yeah. compensate for the business part, for example, for the sales and marketing part? Has that ever been an issue mm-hmm. in terms of your co-founder setup? Mm-hmm. It's actually interesting. We, we do have like by training uh, or by profession, we have a really technical background, mm-hmm. which is actually quite relevant for what uh, we do. Of course. Uh, but on the other side, we share a, all, all three of us share the business interest. Um, a little bit more, like, you know, business is quite broad. So uh, uh, some more pronounced on financing, legal, the kind of accounting world that's more like Chester. Right. Giovanni was from the beginning more on the sales side mm-hmm. um, and really like to engage with customers and, you know, not just like sell something, but also kind of uh, understand what the customer needs and the USPs, like all this kind of um, things. And for me personally, I, I always enjoyed like all, actually all aspects of business. And in the MBA program also, like uh, I could really see, like all, I, I had interest in all of them. Mm-hmm. And this is also a little bit my role now. I'm a little bit the sparring partner in all the different technical roles, but also on the business roles and a little bit involved in all the different aspects and kind of yeah, as a sparring partner. Yeah. I, I grew up in the Emmental, so also uh-huh. surrounded by many farms and farmers. Yeah. And one thing that I can certainly say is that farmers make usually very good businessmen because they know how to negotiate, how to cut deals. So I think there, that's really where you'll probably also have the business already in your DNA to a certain degree. 
Yeah, uh, you, maybe you could say that. If I'm a good negotiator, I mean, I cannot judge. Other people need to judge. Sure. Yeah. Uh, but I can, I can say, yeah, like when I was watching my dad, like when he was like basically, you know, renegotiating the lease for, for the land or something like this, you're leasing, which is very common. This is not, not never easy discussions, to be honest, also when I recall this. Yeah, of course. So, yeah, th yeah I, I relate to, the, to your statement. Yeah. yeah, I think you had exposure to those negotiations and business tactics mm -hmm. early on by your family background so yeah. that's certainly but helps. what i really learned from my dad like he's a very if you if you meet him a very uh, charismatic but really fair person so mm -hmm. for him it needs to be fair yeah. either way because it that you know it's it's all about long lasting relationships and yeah. uh, if you make a exceptionally good deal means the other party might not have been so lucky right right so next time this is uh, maybe not happening again or like yeah. you know that, that there's some prejudice uh, when it comes to the next negotiations so. good point yeah focus on the long-term benefit and certainly you'll be fine yeah certainly we all no. need to have success all exactly mm -hmm. yeah otherwise it's not going to work yeah now one thing that i would like to highlight here is mm -hmm. you, you did intensive research about your you know your product in the end mm -hmm. how did you then manage to step from going down the research ally to commercializing that idea can you walk us through that process because that sounds very intense very also work hour intense in that regard so how do you manage the transition from research to commercialization that was actually not straightforward to be honest uh, like in english they say like pivoting a lot right so there was a lot of gaining insights um, falling on your nose so to say uh, the hard way learning the hard way um, to shape the product we have now so we actually had a, another product before and can maybe also dive in i don't want to make it now too technical but there was a lot of insights and learning on the technical side what's possible what makes sense mm -hmm. also commercially you know calculating a business case does this make sense for production of course and um yeah, also like just in general, like uh, like the insights from what does the market need, um, supply chain, all the different things. Uh, there was a lot of learnings and it was a very gradual process. So the idea and the concept never changed conceptually mm -hmm. that we want to build like the most high performance parts and we want to bring like the most high performance uh, material into new applications, which we could not reach with conventional or existing technologies before. Sure. Uh, but how we got to the technology we are we are having now, and also how we will like kind of continuously develop this, this is really a learning process for the last five years. Yeah. And I guess that's also a necessary part to actually make that innovation a reality. I think you just have to invest the time, right? Yeah, yeah, and also like very like we learned very much that from a prototype or an R&D demonstration at the university, for instance, mm -hmm. to make it into a commercial product. That's a major step. That's not like, oh yeah, let's invest some money and some some time. <laughs> uh, it's 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 really like a, a lot. It's it's also you you don't probably you don't get it right the first time or like with the first step. So it might need some steps um, if you have not done this before. But in a lot of cases, if you do make spin it off uh, R&D project, the people are not necessarily have done startups or commercial products before. So right. I think there is some learning if you already had the experience of this, you could have done it maybe quicker, but it's always like the question, you know, you could have done it quicker if you would have known, but of course, yeah. at, at the, at the end, yeah, it's, uh, it just took some time, some ex experience, uh, learnings, also the hard way. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it, it was quite a ride and it's still a ride. Huh? 
In, in what way did the ETH also help you in, in that regard to really commercialize it beyond the pure research part? On, to be honest, on the commercialization side, there is not necessarily a lot of support because how could, I mean, they, they have no market intelligence or market insight. They have no direct support on like building an industrial product. Um, so in that regard, I would say there is no, no, there's not real, a lot of support, uh, but I didn't, I don't mean this in a negative way. Mm -hmm. yeah. It's just like, how, how could, there is no structure for this. Right. Yeah. In, in what way was then ETH helpful for you more on the research part to even make that innovation possible? Yeah, during that time, also like uh, my professor, Professor Mani at, at the Siemens lab, he was always supportive. He liked the idea from when I was in my master's. Um, my, my brother and I developed the first concepts and ideas and he gave me the, the liberty in a way and also first the chance um, to yeah, make some first research projects um, and also later the PhD to build the foundation. And it's very technical what we do. So um, it leads, to, yeah, it needs this research, and he gave me the yeah the liberty and the chance to do this. Yeah, so fantastic, really grateful. And I think for now, for people who are not that technical, maybe it's great to work with a few examples to understand mm -hmm. what your solution actually does. Can you walk us through an example of you know how your solution works and who your potential buyers and clients are? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so now we're getting into quite technical <laughs> section because it's it's not super it's it's hard to 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 pitch it or explain it in one or two sentences. But I think it's a good idea to start with some, like from the part from the application yeah. to give an example. Sure. Uh, let's imagine aerospace is maybe the easiest because the the material kind of comes from the side. So imagine there is uh, actually new airplanes are made basically out of plastic. Mm -hmm. They are, uh, but the plastic is reinforced with carbon fiber. That's why when they talk about carbon fiber or CFRP, you know, all those kind of, there's a lot of terminology for this. It's actually the, the fuselage, the main body of the airplane, the wings uh, for the new airplanes, they are made of plastic with the continuous carbon fibers in it. So the material is exceptional. It's extremely light. It's light as plastic, but it's stronger than metal, not just stro uh, strong as metal, stronger than metal. Wow. But it's not, not so easy or straightforward to manufacture. Um, so it's quite tedious process, also expensive process. And the main problem is we managed to do this properly for huge structures, like the fuselage is like a double curved, very thin structure. The wings also very thin, very long, yeah. a little bit slightly curved, bent structures, right? Uh, but how about all those very small, complex and thick applications, you know, like classic um, load introduction part or a classic, let's say a component of the, of the uh, suspension system of the airplane, you know, where the wheels are attached, you know, the suspension. Mm -hmm. um, all those components are traditionally milled. And this is also where I come from. My background is actually milling. That's how I first started my professional uh, life. And the problem is this kind of applications are really hard to commercially and technically reach with fiber composites. And this is what we are enabling with the technology. And we bring in we call it the end-to-end -end solution. We call it the red series, actually, um, which is basically starts with the right material. So right material means basically the material that also used in the wing and the fuselage. So the most, the strongest material we have in that space. Mm -hmm. And then we leverage software to design parts, also intricate, small, complex parts. And there's actually a technical angle to it. So we actually, com one component, we split it in the software into multiple subcomponents which is really enabling us to go for those kind of small and thick and intricate and complex geometries. And then we have this two-step process. So we leverage them 3D printing to be able to place the fibers because it's very important how you 
it's very detailed now, but uh, how to place those fibers, how you direct them, mm-hmm. uh, you know, those all those subcomponents. And then there is a second processing step, and that's also part of the secret sauce, how to kind of fuse them together or weld them together. And uh, this final step gives you the quality uh, checkboxes, like all the checkboxes, actually I talk a lot about checkboxes, gives you the final checkboxes for um, for quality and for serious production. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, it enables to bring those multiple parts together. And that's the enabler part for those small, complex, intricate parts. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I'm, and I'm there's actually away. a second software piece even for, like it's a cloud platform that connects all the devices and where the basically the customer data, the, the, the design data, but also the, the processing data, the sensor data is stored. Yeah. But basically, if I understood that correctly, to sum that up, mm-hmm. um, you basically make the, the carbon composites available for parts that were not being able to be produced in that way before. Exactly, and we're leveraging uh, the, this complete solution of materials, software, and hardware, which is, there is like the 3D printing part is coming in. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Wow. And, and the business model is that we are not a contract manufacturer. I'm not, just, uh, sure. not sure if you were going to ask that, but maybe this is also important to understand because the way we offer the technology is we are building technology for our customers mm-hmm. to produce parts for themselves or as a contractor, for instance, for the OEM. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. And in that regard, if you look at the market numbers, you know it's an $80 billion industry or probably even growing super fast and and even bigger than that by now. So how is that market changing and why is now the right timing for you to be active in that specific market? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Maybe first on the the first point, on the the market size or number, that's actually always a little bit hard to say because this number actually comes from fiber composites. Right. But we are mainly actually enabling or enlarging of what we can do with fiber composites getting market share from metals. So in metal parts, yeah. are actually far bigger. This is actually a couple trillion dollar market. So it's actually taking from this multi-trillion dollar market, slices by slice by slice, the market share and bringing it into fiber composites. But, you know, just, to, that just makes on, sense. on this number. There's actually, looking into the, the composite world, there's actually quite a trend for metal substitution and for automation. So fiber composites are not new. This is like a 60, 70 year old, even older industry Mm -hmm. uh, growing decently. Um, But what's really now kind of accelerating the adoption is this automation part. And automation fiber composites is uh, very broad in that sense too. I I mentioned this airplane wings and fuselages before. There it's a lot about gigantic robots that kind of place this material, Mm -hmm. kind of pick and place. And there's also kind of like a teaser roller system. Uh, So like a rolling layup system. And what we are doing is basically adding to this automation capabilities, but in a different different angle or a different focus, which is on the smaller complex parts, which all those automation technologies, which are growing fast, are not reaching. So we're building up basically a new, let's say, a new manufacturing route for fiber composites on the automation side. But why, why the time is right is because there is momentum in this automation of fiber composites. And in general, I would say, manufacturing is changing the manufacturing landscape is changing mm-hmm. it's now a good time to get into this like you know everyone talks about data and data gathering but now it's it's a good time to leverage data to make good decisions uh, optimize processes enabling new business models for instance automation to drive down costs and efficiencies it's always been there but now it's you know come, automotive is already very much automated now we have to bring into right. o- other industries and also like high performance materials new materials 
also sustainable materials, recyclable materials. It's actually very, it's really close to my heart too, but we can also dive in maybe a little bit. Um, this is also important. And what we do is also very much focused on this. So an industry is also demanding this. So in general, like there is an industry demand for change. In yeah, and from multiple sides, as it seems, mm -hmm. right? So it's really a good momentum that is developing here. Yeah. With your automation that you mentioned, are you also able to significantly reduce the cost for the manufacturers then? Or how does that work? Because I could imagine mm -hmm. with the automation, you're probably way more efficient than the things in the past. Yep. Um, first, we are, we are, but first I have to add that we are not substituting necessarily the existing technologies. Okay. So we are enabling new, like the, you know, enabling basically new things which the existing could not reach. So it's not so much about making it a little bit uh, more efficient or more, uh, or more cost efficient in that sense uh, compared to the existing technologies. Mm -hmm. It's very much about enabling new things. And um, I also have to add that I mentioned aerospace before, but it's not our only industry. So we have aerospace. It's more very classic, so to say, for fiber composites. It's about the performance of the material being very lightweight right. and also now very much about this, in general, like the life cycle and assessment of parts and the CO2 um, um, average of, of parts or CO2 production of parts. Um, but then we have medical, which is very different. So it's there, it's not so much about the performance of the part by structural uh, performance or you know that it's lightweight mm -hmm. it's 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 some usp but it's not the main the main is kind of that it's sterilizable and that's x-ray transparent so x-ray translucency they call it in english it's basically when you use it in a surgical environment in the body outside of the body you can scan and you will have not a blurry image you're a very accurate picture and that's not the case for metals very different usp so you yeah, know but also fascinating if you yeah, think about yeah, it yeah. yeah yeah also i learned a lot in this space um also as different regulatory requirements compared to right. other industries like aerospace and then we have a, a third main vertical um or industry which is we, we call it leisure and luxury or recreational luxury has very similar requirements. That's why it's one group. It's a broad group. It comes from a, it goes from a sailing boat component all the way to mountain bike components to a luxury watch. So it's very broad. And uh, there the, the USPs can be performance or so lightweight, um, but it could be also basically the, the surface finish, the, the uniqueness of the material. It can be very broad to USP. Yeah? And to come back to your also like initial point, cost is always now of, of the essence in a lot of industries. So even aerospace, you know, it's, it's, it's not, doesn't relate to Corona at all. It needs to be cost competitive. So in general, we need a cost competitive manufacturing solution that enables production, serious production, mm -hmm. uh, and also delivers, um, yeah, exceptional USPs in the different verticals. Yeah. But then you would say, of course, costs are important, but it's not your USP. Your USP is really the the technology part that you made make something possible that was not possible before. In in my belief, for a lot of things, uh, it's now the combination of cost competitiveness mm -hmm. and like basically extra value and extra value. I mean, it depends what you do, um, sure. but it it, it it is a combination. Um, and everyone likes also cost reduction, so right. So cost competitive yeah. could be also cost reduction. So for medical, for instance, it could be also big uh, cost reduction benefit. The same for aerospace, and actually for all. I mean, if we look into our, all our applications, cost is very. Be, it's driven by cost being cost neutral or cost reduction. Yeah. 
So it's it cost is of the essence too. Yeah. I mean, that's the core business in the end. You need to show them how you either make them more money or help them save money, right? Yeah, yeah. But it's I mean, it, but it's also interesting if you have decision makers uh, in the companies at the customer side. Um, they are not always like motivated by the same way. Some are motivated by the business case, so it's purely cost, you know. Right. Uh, others are more about the enabling part, uh, the performance part, even all to to the extent of marketing, you know, that it could be also marketing aspect. Yeah. yeah. In that regard, I also wonder, you know, the market that you entered now, mm -hmm. it's very broad. You know, you mentioned uh, watches, mm -hmm. boats, aerospace, mm -hmm. or aero market in general mm -hmm. up to medical mm -hmm. how do you keep the right focus because you mentioned yourself you have different regulations that you need to consider etc mm -hmm. how do you stay focused with all those broad markets is that a challenge for you or is mm -hmm. that pretty difficult because of the way that you're set up with your business model yeah that's a ch challenge and it's also challenging questions you get from investors quite a bit okay. so we deliberately go after the different industries um, because at the end first you have to start someday and second, uh, what we learned a lot is it's actually not so much about now I have figured out this one application or application field, and now I chase every single company around the globe for this. We actually do this, but on the other side, uh, what we what we very uh, very much learned is that you need to have the champion companies. You have to find the champion applications or lighthouse projects we can sometimes call in German, right? Um, you have to find those, but also the champion companies. So the companies that have the right resources, the right mindset, the right management, the right focus for, for making this happen, want to pioneer and not just jump the bandwagon when it's already a big thing and everyone you know, is right. proven. And so it's very much about this, like finding those killer applications, lighthouse projects, champion projects together with the champion companies. And if you say, hey, I have now this great application and I have one great champion company, does not mean that there is like all the other companies in that space are also champions and have the right mindset and so on. Mm -hmm. um, so this is one of the big, biggest learnings. So it, but it's twofold because it has a lot of potential. Like also you mentioned regulatory bodies. So this means it will take for certain applications, certain industries, a little bit more time than others. So it's actually going after those different verticals with different regulations and timelines, so to say. You will continuously kind of go from, let's say, proof concept into production. And it's all not happening at the same time. So this is actually great. So you basically can balance. You always you generate revenue, you generate experience for the company, for the customers along the way across all those different verticals and it comes consecutively. So this is great. Um, and uh, also just enlarges the future potential because if we have, would have said like we just do aerospace or just medical or just leisure, then um, you greatly um, reduce the market, the addressable market size. Yeah. Fair point, but it's also difficult, I could imagine, to address that with the team because mm -hmm. different industries probably also require a bit of different sales approaches. Yeah. So the challenge internally is to really understa understand and communicate well mm -hmm. What are the applications we look into, into in those different um, industries, verticals, right. and that we understand, understand well um, what's our value proposition there and what can we do and what can we not do and how long does it take? And it needs a good understanding and an extremely good communication between all us, all of us in the company, especially all, let's say, customer-facing um, mm -hmm. um, people in the company. 
And this is also what we are working on. Communication is extremely important of the essence because if, if there's one insight, it doesn't necessarily translate into exactly you know and translate to everyone in the company yeah. so this is i think the very important aspect of what we do and but in general it's challenging for sure because if you will have one application field in one industry it's for sure easy <laughs> easier to master or manage you also talked about the champions the lighthouse projects mm -hmm. how do you actually find them because that's not a filter on linkedin where you can say show me the companies that do this and that uh, in, in terms of production, et cetera. Mm -hmm. How do you find those projects and then also convince them to, to join forces? I think we do a lot of uh, all the way from cold calling to like direct approaches, like through the network, through exhibitions, not so easy in the Corona times, but it's possible. So there's a lot of direct interaction and direct reach out. Um, we are getting more and more inbound um, leads. Um, that's nice. because people perceive us now actually quite a bit as a production technology company, not just another, another, uh, I say a little bit provocative, another 3D printing company. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think this is kind of built uh, the reputation, the brand we're building. So this pays off. And I think personally, I think it will pay off quite a bit over time. Um, yeah, so... Yeah, I think if you get inbounds, that's basically the best case that you can get because that sort of validates that the solution you're providing is actually solving a real problem. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. That's I think wonderful. That's, that's great. Yeah. But still, like, it's still, it, it takes effort. It's an effort. Uh, but also, like, you know, the, the customer value also for a first project or for first technology sale, it's significantly higher than maybe one software subscription. We also mm -hmm. do actually software subscriptions, uh, uh, but it's part of a bigger solution. So it also right. justifies the acquisition costs. But still, like, it's, it, in a way, it has high acquisition costs that will eventually pay off a lot when it goes into production because mm -hmm. we are not necessarily want to sell a thousand machine sets and a, a, a thousand software licenses to a thousand customers. So it should be at the end a couple, like maybe 20, 30 customers that have like a thousand machines. Yeah. Makes sense. Mm -hmm. Another big challenge, you know, we heard about the complexity of your product, but you also basically have that complexity internally. Because if you look at it, you not only focus on the materials, but you also focus on software, hardware, and engineering mm -hmm. all together combined in your solution. Isn't that incredibly difficult to coordinate and to make a whole product out of these three disciplines instead of just selling software as a classic SaaS mm -hmm. solution, basically? It's always, I haven't done a software company before, so I, I cannot judge. But what I can judge is that it is a challenge to have a very sophisticated, broad product where you need extremely, and Composite is actually very, very like technically uh, yeah, challenging material. So at the end you have extremely, yeah, you, you need extremely like experts in all the different domains. And this is actually, it's hard to find like there, like people with the background and also to coordinate internally that, you know, the different teams, the different, it's, yeah, it's a challenge. I would say this is maybe one of the main challenges um, to keep the team together to focus on the product and what's the product, the definition of the product and the product strategy, the product roadmap for the future. That's actually part of my, uh, my job. Um, and it's, it's a challenging job because what's, what's just an R&D effort? What's a product effort? What, what's the final feature we want to to do right so you know what, what comes out of this research aspect what comes out of this learning and 
uh, when can we have this feature in a product or when we can have this upgrade the product it's it's yeah it's a challenge yeah it's I also can exciting. Imagine, yeah. I can imagine, yeah. But you also certainly made some learnings over the years. Mm -hmm. Do you have any tips or any key learnings that you took away over the past years on how to manage that challenge? Because, yeah, it's incredibly complex and a really difficult job to do. Mm -hmm. I think, for, for, like, internally, you have to make everyone see what we are working towards, too. Um, I, I would say this is actually it. You can always do this better. There is no, like, now we manage to do this properly. So I, I think also for us, it's a continuous process that we really, that everyone would base. I think a good measure is if you asked, like, a different, pe different people at the company, mm -hmm. and they would give you pretty much, in their own words, the same product definition. Yeah. And I think we, we are not yet there, uh, but we, we are working on that. So I think... But internally, you have to invest. You have to invest that everyone sees what you're building, not just on the vision side, uh, like really, like really concrete, like, okay, for this next quarter, for the next half year, for the first next year, what are we building? What's the product? What's the product roadmap? And yeah, there we have to invest a lot. Um, from the external perspective, I think the product it also it always needs to add value in this in that sense i mean you know you have to put those business glasses on and have have to kind of challenge yourself is this now something that actually creates value that the customer needs or is it just a nice to have does it just one customer need because you know this is like maybe there has like a a certain desire for this you know it came uh, through sales it came into the r d r d was excited building it doesn't necessarily it's not scalable at some point so this kind of business classes of what's a scalable product what creates value that's also important yeah. i like to to talk a bit more about the internal part how do you actually communicate the the product and also the vision that everybody understands that do you do that on like a weekly all hands meeting or how, how do you do that to make sure that you try to do the best job possible so everybody understands I'm not sure if the, the weekly all hands meeting would be the, the best platform because everyone would be a little bit annoyed every week to say, you know, imagine, this yeah. guy now <laughs> pitching again in front. Um, we do different things. So we do, actually, we do, like we have now introduced the concept of OKRs, this objective key results, a goal setting principle or a framework, uh, not a new one. Uh, so we also learned that we have kind of, we have to adjust it to, to fit our purpose. So there we do, um, yearly objectives and we do quarterly objectives so kind of to see a little bit short term and medium term where where we're heading and then we also kind of maybe twice a year more or less we have dedicated sessions where we focus on product and where we focus on vision where we want to be this also changes over time to be honest so if we now have to lay out those meetings and what the, the, let's say the content of the meetings over the next not even five years, like the next two years, I think you, you would be off quite a bit because it will change. But sometimes you have the feeling, that's why I say it's not, not necessarily scheduled, you know, twice a year, but you have the feeling now we have to talk about this. Mm -hmm. We have to talk about our vision, what we want to achieve uh, next couple of years, or we want to uh, talk more about the product, which is, in my opinion, very much related to the vision uh, because people connect it and this, everyone should connect it. It's, it's related. So, yeah. Um, a little bit like this, so OKRs for the planning, mm -hmm. and this partly also gives you the product and the vision perspective, and then also dedicated sessions on vision, mission, product. 
Is there something that you wish you would do more of in that regard? To be honest, I wish to have more time uh, to really dedicate more time to this because it's actually something that you can say, hey, this is about figuring out the presentation, making a presentation. Let's, let's do it in a couple of hours, maximum a day. But it's actually so much work uh, if you do it properly. It's almost like unlimited uh, product definition, product strategy. There is no there is no limit. You could always do it better. You can always do it more sophisticated. And I wished and still wish to have this actually. Uh, I, we also changed a little bit the concepts here. So I want to dedicate more time and resources to to invest in this, how we define it and how we communicate internally, how we align it also internally. I guess that's also going to be a, a key step towards scaling the company to manage that step so you can share that knowledge and that vision internally. Yep. So everybody can pull in the same direction. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, you're always like a little bit like there are 25 things on your list and you always feel like, oh yeah, I do this like just like spontaneous. I can pitch it, you know, it's my head. But at the end, you you figure it. you should have dedicated more time. You should have um, made it very clear to everyone. Um, and that's what I want to do um, in, in the future more, to dedicate more time and focus more on this. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we all have 24 hours in the day, but I think yeah. that's a really interesting focus to have mm -hmm. to also observe from the outside how you manage this to scale the company to new levels. Yeah, Super exciting. And sometimes you're caught up in the operational things, you know, the day-to-day -day stuff yeah. uh, that really, and this is not day-to-day -day stuff. And then, um, yeah, it's a classic problem. Um, your day-to-day um, kind of steals the time from like those kind of things yeah. on the company side. Yeah. How do you do that? You know, in, in tiny details, like don't you go to the office when you think about those bigger, more strategic top topics that are not day-to-day -day operations? Because if you are at the office, everybody runs at you and you get caught up in the day-to-day -day stuff. Or do you do that by just blocking your calendar and go to a meeting room? Or how do you exact, exactly execute that mm -hmm. to, to have a good outcome? It's interesting. Like I would have told you like five years ago that I'm this kind of person that for those kind of things, mm -hmm. more strategic, more, you know, like well, like well-rounded, well thought through. I need time. I, I block entire day. I don't want to get bothered. Yeah. Um, but now I'm actually built very much the other way. So I do put it in my calendar and it's on the list. You know, this week I, I want to do this, but I do it like throughout the day. So it will be interrupted maybe four or five times by people stopping by, but maybe also just meetings in between. Sure. So I'm very much now breaking this into smaller pieces, which was not my, actually, I, I thought it was not my style like before, but I think it's actually fa fairly okay. You don't have to get bothered. I think the second you have this feeling I'm bothered, then it like uh, throws you off and you're not like, uh, you're not efficient in doing this. Yeah. But if you don't mind this process, then in my opinion, me personally, I, I think I'm not suffering uh, a lot on the efficiency I'm doing. Yeah. I could imagine that then you have these little check-ins when you have time to invest on, on the strategic topics. Mm -hmm. And then in the meantime, even when you're working on the operational stuff, then your subconscious mind is still progressing your thoughts. And yeah. then you come back at a different point because you already processed the information to yeah. a certain degree. Maybe, yeah, maybe that's a good side effect, a positive side effect. That's kind of the, the example when you, you cannot figure out this equation at night, 
Very exactly. late at night, yeah. you, you you wake up in the morning, you have the solution. Yeah, yeah it's... Uh, but maybe, maybe it's I'm also just effect, yeah? sugarcoating uh, the distraction and say, maybe that's not ideal, but I don't know. It could be a nice side effect, but everybody has to find out what works yeah. best for them, I guess. Yeah, I'm not a psychologist, but psychology is, a, is an interesting phenomenon, right? So yeah. maybe sugarcoating is what you need to be efficient. And- <laughs> Yeah. Who knows? As long as it's working for you, that's all that's necessary. Yeah. So yeah, I'm I'm uh, quite pleased like with the way the, the way I'm I'm the, my day to day or my my days are like this. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah, but I do put a lot of stuff in my calendar. Of course. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The last challenge that I want to talk about is, of course, the need for working capital. Mm-hmm. So you know, with your setup, I mean, also as soon as you have hardware involved, mm-hmm. usually you need much more funds compared to a traditional software startup, right? Mm-hmm. So you also raised a four point three million dollar round from technology fund Investir and Wingman Ventures. Mm-hmm. How how did you use those funds, and why was that the right step to take? Because of course, there's a need for capital, but you still have to make a decision to say, yes, we're going to take on external investors. Yeah, I think for us, like as for a lot of startups in in general, <laughs> I would say, uh, it's still a lot of, on salaries as well. So uh, still the biggest portion for sure is salaries, yeah. not just because it's a uh, negative words or high cost country, but uh, also like te- high talent. So I don't want to. Uh, say this is in a negative way, but um, salaries are for sure the main driver for costs. We have an additional big component, which is also, um, let's say, hardware investments. Mm-hmm. Um, could be just for R&D purposes, but it could be also for in-house production capabilities, uh, prototyping capabilities, stuff like this. Um, it is very much more resource intensive than... Um, let's say maybe some other startups, some other, because, you know, it always depends. Um, Yeah, I mean, I think it comes from the nature, the way we, what kind of product we are building. Um, Also the technical complexity and challenge of fiber composites just in general, not just the hardware component, that we need a lot of resources on the employee side. So that's the salary part. And we have for sure a little bit, not a little bit, we have more resources for sure required for, for assets or investments. Um, yeah, and we will like continue to continue to raise funds because we are, um, we are just basically scratching the ice, uh, scratching the surface. Sorry, I, I'm not sure why I'm saying ice. <laughs> All good. And in that regard, I mean, it was probably not even a thought to bootstrap the company or to try to get it financed by client orders with pre-financing options of mm-hmm. uh, getting a prepayment in. That was probably never a real option, or did you ever consider that and think about it? Yeah, I don't. I don't say, or I never say ne- uh, never, because there's always maybe a way. But I feel like for us, it would have been very hard. And at the at the end, also uh, time is of the essence. So it's very uh, like a three D printing additive, also fiber components. It's like a let's say a hot space, and you have to be competitive. I mean, yeah. it also comes back to the point that if you look into the U.S. versus Europe, we have a very, we are a strong manufacturing powerhouse. But if we see like the venture capital investments flowing into startups, like Europe is almost not on the on the map <laughs> compared to the U.S. Yeah. Uh, so very, it's like, it's almost like, it's, it's very scary to be honest, because we have this strong history in manufacturing and legacy. Um, and we, we have to be competitive. So it's not, bootstrapping usually means especially in our context it it would mean also a significantly prolonged timeline 
And this would, I think this would kill us at some point. Yeah, especially because the timing is very good right now. So you can't afford to not join the party right now to a certain degree. Yes, agree. But on the other side, you the manif- like the, the ecosystem on the investor side in really deep tech manufacturing mm-hmm. is very young and very, let's say, still conservative, like very conservative compared to other industries in Europe, because Europe ca- caught up a lot on, on different in different industries and in different, yep. let's say, um, things that have been proven in the US, um, <laughs> let's put it this way. But there's a long way on manufacturing. So for us, this is it's still challenging to because we raise big rounds, higher valuations. At yeah, I mean the, the the revenues are not yet there compared to maybe some other other industries or what you would expect on the revenue side to justify the valuation. At sure. the end, it's a more the mid and long term potential you have to believe in. Yeah. In that regard, do you think it would be easier for you to raise money from the U.S. to accommodate for that? This is like this is like this tricky part, right? right? Because you could say, yeah, there maybe the mindset from the investors uh, is there, but on the other side, the bar for a US VC to ve- invest in a in a actually Swiss, not even like you know e- European Union Swiss mm-hmm. um, um, startup is is also challenging. So there, you have to be more exceptional than the others to 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 make this happen. Right. And so it's challenging, uh, but I'm not complaining. So I think uh, we will make a good. Uh, Good way forward, and but comes back to the time aspect, right? And the bootstrap, uh, bootstrapping um, aspect. If you wanna, is your path getting acquired at some point, or is your path maybe becoming actually dominant company in the vertical? If it's the latter, then um, you you have to really continuously raise bigger rounds, and you have to continuously make inroads in the in the U.S. Because if you're present there, it's also getting a little bit more easier on on the fundraising side, and it just needs to be this combination. But I think for us, like the focus is now to to, yeah, to expand and uh, work towards being dominant in what we do. And it's a long way still. Fair point. But out of these two options that you just mentioned, you know, getting acquired or building something really big mm-hmm. internationally, mm-hmm. what what's your strategy if you had to pick one of the two? Yeah, for us, like we we are quite aligned on on the management side also to go for the latter for the second one to to build. To really capture all the champions, and the champions are not just European, um, and also yeah, become the manufacturing company for for this kind of uh, materials in that kind of application spectrum. And uh, there are a lot of different applications, and we believe we can also pull it off. We have to reinvent ourselves and the technology and the company over and over every couple of years, maybe every couple of months even, and uh, we are willing to do that. Yeah. I love that ambition, you know, thinking big and also going for the international, for the big player market, basically. Mm-hmm. I think that's really the spirit that we can need more of here in Switzerland. So Thank kudos you. to that. Yeah. Then if you look at the other potential competitors, I know there are very few competitors, like direct competitors, but if you then look at mm-hmm. startups, maybe even from the US, you know, that are active in a similar space and just get much more funding than you do, mm-hmm. Do you have sleepless nights or does that stress you out if you think your strategy is to become the global big player, but then you look at the US with startups active in a similar space that just get so much more money than you mm-hmm. do here? It's tricky. It's a tricky question. And I don't want to get into a complaint mode, which actually I don't I don't also have the desire to make a make it a complaint. Sure. Um, maybe first, and I sound maybe uh, doesn't 
maybe I sound a little bit like uh, I have done this 10 times before. I did, did not. So, but the way I see it now, money is not just money. Um, it means like in the US, you might raise bigger rounds, higher valuations, but also the terms are important. You know, the, the fine print is important, right? <laughs> and the exit is very much defined um, at some point. So we have competitors that are now public after six, seven years, even though five years, some after seven years, which is great. So billion dollar companies, uh, you have others that are a little bit younger, but already we are four years old. Um, they are four years old and a half, four and a half years, and they raised already 130 million. So it's a little bit different, but coming back to the, the let's say money is not equally money and the fine print is important. The exit is also very much defined. US is very opportunistic. Mm -hmm. So it's basically uh, you make it and it's going to be exceptionally or you go like 150 kilometers straight into the wall, right? So this classic <laughs> analogy there. Yeah. Um, for us, to be honest, we just have to make more out of the dollar. That's the classic European also say, you know, to, to motivate us. Right. But uh, the way we also see it, like what comes now in the next years, we see it a little bit like through the glasses of um, a little bit the, the US mindset. So we have to be more opportunistic. We have to be more risk taking. We also need a little bit more funding for this. And there is a way, there is always a way if you focus on it. So we will actually... I don't want to say copy the US way because it will be maybe also not possible, but we don't want to be slow. So for me, it's a lot about time. Um, so we want to really like accelerate, not keep the pace or, or even slow down. And it needs to be balanced between funding, our European mindset, which is also great value, um, but also like absorb some of the American mindset. Uh. So you want to get the best out of the, the two worlds, basically, combine? In, in a way, because it doesn't have to be always like the exact American way and also some competitor, as some of our competitors did it. Um, but um, yeah, we have to observe or learn certain aspects of it and yeah. compare it with what we, what we are naturally good at in Europe. And I think you already started with the bigger vision to say, hey, we don't want to get just acquired. We want to build a global number one player. Yeah. yeah. I think that's already a very good starting point. Yeah. And it's it's just uh, you have to keep, uh, keep, keep staying on it. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So if you look where, we are, where you are today, you have a very strong position. You're active in a lucrative market and you also have very enthusiastic supporters with the existing investors, mm -hmm. the first clients, etc. So what is next for you? What have you planned for, for the future? Um, I think it's also, there will be some big announcements coming soon. And I think it's, it's part of, the, I don't want to like already like give it away, um, but there's like uh, parts are connected to this. So there will be uh, bigger partnerships coming out. There will be like uh, geographical expansion. There will be new products line in the, like to be developed and in the pipeline. So it's it's really about making the next big step also on the company, on the company side itself. The, we'll like we'll grow next year quite a bit, um, but also the structure of the company. The company needs to evolve with the ambition. Of course. Um, and we will see the first, this I think a really big point for us, we'll see the first serious production cases. So the first parts that are produced in the, in the hundreds, in the thousands. 
uh, with the uh, series production quality, reproducibility, showcasing our technology. And in general, we need to showcase more publicly what we can do because in a lot of cases, you know, customers are very, very um, restrictive in what we can share and uh, sensitive, sensitive to when it comes to um, yeah, sharing any information, basically, of what we do together. And we need more public cases to showcase it. And this you will also see in the next year and the years to come a lot. A lot more. That sounds like a very exciting future ahead of you. Yeah, it's exciting, but yeah, it's not getting uh, less challenging. That's for sure. But it's also good. I think we have to have to always push it, push the envelope. Mm. Yeah. So to wrap up today's episode, we have some rapid fire questions for you. So okay. I either give you a short question or an option to choose from, and you have to make an answer in one sentence. Okay, let's try it. Let's go. Where do you go to think? Um, under the shower. <laughs> Classic. What makes you smile? Um, if something works out, it could be a very small thing or a big thing. But if something yeah, works, that gives me energy. Nice. How many hours of sleep did you get last night? Oh, seven and a half. Nice. What does money mean to you? It's not my, my main driver. My, my driver's impact and what uh, I can have. Or what, can, uh, what I can change. Nice. And the last one for you today, ask for permission or for forgiveness? It depends on the situation. <laughs> so when do you choose forgiveness, when permission? Sometimes you have to ask, ask for forgiveness because it's not possible before to get the full alignment. No. Martin, thank you so much for stopping by. It was a pleasure talking to you and we wish you lots of success with 90 laps and are really excited to see your path to the global number one player. All the best. Thank you, Stefan. Thank you so much. It's, it was a pleasure to be here and I really appreciate you, you taking the time. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, you can support us by rating our show on Apple Podcasts. This way, we can reach an ever-growing number of aspiring entrepreneurs.